Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Hello, and welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast. This is your host, Susanna Scully. Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome back to those who have been longtime listeners and to those who are tuning in for the first time. Welcome. Excited to have you here. Today, we have a really wonderful and interesting guest. His name is Carl Buchheit, and he has a PhD in transpersonal psychology from the International University of Professional Studies. He began studying neuro-linguistic programming, which is also known as NLP. Some of you may know it. Um, he began in 1979 and has been the owner and director of training at NLP Marin in Northern California for over 20 years. Carl travels globally lecturing about and teaching the innovative methodology that he calls transformational NLP, but his main focus continues to be on working with students and clients directly. He also has a new book coming out in the spring called Transformational NLP, A New Psychology. Now, I will share, I have worked with Carl directly. I have done a session with him, and a two-hour session with him, and then also did something called Family Constellation Therapy Session, which we get into in the session. I don't go into the details of my session because, you know, I don't need to share everything, but, um, but I do share what the experience was like, which is really just wild. I can't even explain. Uh, anyway, uh, and Carl himself is very gifted and just understands thing on a things on a whole different realm than most do. So I was thrilled to be able to have a chance to interview him. So in this interview, we discuss why human beings get stuck arm wrestling with themselves when they try to create change in their lives the hidden tribal dynamics that subconsciously impact all of our lives, how to truly move forward with behavioral change to create the life you want. And finally, we talk about what is NLP and what is a family const family constellation therapy session and how do you use it to create transformation in your life? So there is a lot of great stuff in here. And if you are curious about making change in your life or you feel like, you are stuck in some way from moving forward with what you want, this is an episode you are not going to want to miss. So without further ado, let's jump in. Hello, Carl. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, Susanna. What a treat. Really happy to be here. Well, I'm very excited. Um, so I thought we could get started by having you tell our audience a bit about NLP. What is it? Why is it interesting? Uh, how does it benefit people? And, and we'll go from there. Okay, thank you. Well, it's interesting because I've spent most of my life doing it. So right there, <laughs> it has to be entirely fascinating. Um, NLP, is the, the, the letters NLP stand for Neuro Linguistic Programming, um, which is kind of a, of a mouthful. What it, what, what it is, is it's a, it's a way of understanding human experience, understanding how human beings generate just about everything they experience, in fact, everything they experience. And it's a way of understanding and actually really going in directly to change the patterns, to change 
and this is where the word programming comes in and is actually relevant, to change the programming that creates our experience. Now, hardly anyone wants to use NLP to change something that's that's working really well, that's delightful and pleasant for them. So most of what we end up paying attention to is the experiences that people have that are really stuck that won't change. Um, and um, the beauty of the NLP model is that although it's about understanding things, it's really directly about changing things. It's about having a backspace key for our internal patterning, for our internal programming, so that when we find the the code, so to speak, not to get too geeky, but when we find the instructions in our brains, in ourselves, that are generating what, what we don't want, we can use the backspace key, take out what's not working, and put in something else that will work better, that will function for us now, where we are in our lives now, rather than what, well, what it comes down to is really, really old safety patterning from long ago and far away that was designed to keep us as well as we could be and as safe as we could be and as secure in belonging and love, usually in, in family situations, to keep us as all of that as we could have been a long time ago, right? So, so the, the simplest way to say it is NLP is about working with solutions life solutions that have way overstayed their welcome and have now become problems and probably became problems quite a long time ago, actually. And if you could, and just to give our listeners an idea, I have used an NLP coach who um, named Jeff Riddle, who is actually you, was one of your mentees, I think. Um, he, he, he is so excellent. He's one of our finest, finest students. We're very proud of him. He's incredible. And so I have benefited from the work of Jeff and NLP to a great, amazing degree. Um, and also worked with you, Carl, uh, in something we'll get to in a bit. So I am just beyond the biggest believer in NLP. But if you will, Carl, Give an example or some typical example so people have an idea. Why would, what are some things that people may be running up against that they would want to enlist the help of NLP, for example? Great. Thank you. Um, the shortest answer to that question, Susanna, is pretty much anything. <laughs> there are several levels of change that we work with typically. Um, they're all important. They're all affecting each other all, all the time. But one one level is called behavior level change. And that's pretty much what it sounds like. It's about arranging it so that we have access to different or or entirely new behavior in ourselves so that we can operate differently in the world. And before that happens, of course, we have to operate differently in relationship with ourselves. So a lot of NLP-based change work is is about revising patterning so that we're not working against ourselves nearly as much as we usually do. Um, an analogy I often use in, in our classes is it's human beings get stuck arm wrestling with themselves about life. Mm. And and. And our instinct is to try to win that contest, right? But if we succeed in defeating part of ourselves in order to improve our lives, um, who is it exactly who wins? So, so 
the, the, the patterning that becomes most difficult, most painful for like everybody is the stuff that's so perfectly balanced because if we succeed, we'll lose. Um, and, uh, we, we are set up by Mother Nature to not let that happen. So if someone goes to the office in the morning and they see, uh, they see the name of the company, on the side of the building and they start getting angry. They start loading up a whole bunch of resentment and so forth. Um, we might ask them, what is it you would like to experience? Because that's the most important question. It's the question that we pretty much always start with. What would you like? NLP is based on discovering and working with the extremely beautiful capacity humans have to make choices and to have the experience that comes from those choices and then to choose again and choose again and choose again if it's not working the way we want. So if someone goes to work and they see the company name and they're filled with anger and resentment, we would have to say, so what would you like to experience when you go to work? Um, that's rather simple and straightforward. And then what we would do is revise the patterning so that they can see the building that so they can go in and participate in their jobs and so forth, but with the emotions that they would prefer to have. And, um, and as part of making those revisions, and it's done very directly as part of making those revisions, we also have to pay attention to something that we call IPOs, uh, which people in finance think means one thing, but mm -hmm. NLP, we're, we're pretty sure it stands for intended positive outcomes. So if someone has been angry at work, just to make that simple example, there's an intended positive outcome, maybe lots more than just one, behind the experience of that anger. That anger in their patterning, in their lives, is trying to take care of something really important for them. So we don't just want to disconnect the anger and connect in something new. We want to discover what has the anger been operating in service to and in service for, and we want to preserve all of that because that's very important and very beautiful. And if we don't pay attention to that, then actually change doesn't happen very well. Um, so, you know, without attention to those IPOs, things change, and then they go back to where they were. Okay, so let's, I'm going to stop you just for a moment. So let's use this example because I think, you know, a lot of our listeners work, a lot of them work in offices. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are angry at their office. Yep. Um, so, so let's just assume I'm a listener. And, um, yeah, when I'm at work, I start to feel those feelings. Um, you ask me, what do I want to experience? Um, and I say, I want to experience joy, fulfillment, meaning, purpose, uh, excitement. And again, I'm just imagining, uh, mm -hmm. that's how they want to feel. And then you ask me, what is my intended positive outcome? Is that mean the choice that I, that, that means what I want to experience? It's not something that I would necessarily ask that directly. Mm. Although some, although sometimes it's, there's a process of discovering what those intended positive outcomes are. Um, everything that human beings experience is sourced out of some kind of intended positive outcome. It's one of our, well, it's one of our main presuppositions. There are no exceptions to that ever. Even when experience is really actually, is really horrible and really ugly and really awful, operating underneath that, if we can go down far enough or maybe up far enough, depending on how you think about it, there's some kind of intended positive. So 
there's a bit of an art form to working with someone to discover those intended positive outcomes so that we can respect them and include them and make sure that everything good that's been trying to happen continues to happen. Um, it kind of comes down to arranging it so that it feels okay to feel okay. Mm-hmm. And then, and then so it starts to feel good to feel good. And then eventually, and it doesn't have to take a long time, eventually having it feel excellent to feel excellent. Um, humans, my experience is, and I've been doing this a very long time, humans aren't actually that well set up to experience things being good. We're kind of uh, scientifically designed, so to speak, to endure pain. We do that beautifully. We've been doing that uh, for 100,000 years or, or more. Mm-hmm. Um, finding a way to have feeling good actually feel good is really a remarkable experience. I've been through it uh, as a client. I've been through it as a practitioner innumerable times. Um, it's so nice when feeling better feels better instead of comes with some sort of a really subtle objection that causes the change to not hold or to disappear after a little while. And is that the case where, let's say something wonderful happens, you get a promotion, you get in a new relationship, you, I don't know, whatever it may be. Uh, and then you either second guess it or you like, doubt it away or whatever it is, you kind of bring it down a few levels to make yourself feel safe. Is that an example of what you mean? Um, yes, except that um, none of that, di- well, most of the time that dialing down or or having the excellent good thing slip away, mm-hmm. That's it, almost no one ever does that consciously. It mm-hmm. just, kind, just kind of happens. There is... Um, there is patterning in human beings to, and this I think Susanna might go to the other topic, mm-hmm. which was um, devotion and loyalty operating in what, for want of a better term, we call the family soil. Soul, sorry, family soul. Um, the um, there is a definition of human suffering I heard a really long time ago. It completely changed how I was making sense of things, my own experience and the experience of, of the people I was talking with. In the family soul, there uh, there seems to be an imperative that creates suffering. And the definition of suffering comes out this way. Human suffering is equal to the limiting things or more often the terrible stuff that we do to ourselves in an unworkable effort to say, I love you to someone else. Mm. So if we think about the something that's stuck for someone, they're having this negative experience at work, they're having an unwanted experience in their family, their sense of themselves is that they're not where they want to be or where they could be. They're turned against themselves, they're at odds with themselves in some way. This is pretty much where, where most of us humans spend a lot of every day. What we notice is that there are two main things going on there, is that there's old safety patterning in the brain in the actual physical neurology, there's old safety patterning that's designed to make sure that who we were could belong and be safe wherever it was we were growing up. That's the first part. And on the other side of that coin, 
is what we call devotional patterning, which is this imperative, imperative thing in us to make sure that we, that we keep company, that we belong with, that we respect, and if possible, that we help the people who've given us life. In other words, the families from which we are descended. The brain patterning doesn't, it, it happens in real time always. Everything is being generated right now. The past, the future being generated right now. The devotional patterning, that, that operation of love, an unworkable effort to say, I love you to, to people, that happens somewhere else. That doesn't happen locally. It's sort of a non-local event. It's sort of pretty quantum. So outside of time and space. It seems to be outside of time and space. Okay. Yes. Um, Just like, for example, have, when, sorry to interrupt, but when somebody sure, passes, sure. so when somebody passes on, you don't stop loving them. No. So therefore, love is, yeah, outside time and space. And, um, and we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily conscious of the devotion that is going on within us. If, if we got a CC in our email every time we sustained a limitation in our lives in an unworkable effort to say, I love you to someone else. And we only, that's that definition of suffering. Yes. And we only suffer for the ones who've come before us. If we got a CC in our email every time we did that, we would get a hundred of them, hundred a day. We would notice what was going on. We would say, well, this is perhaps very beautifully intended, but my gosh, there's really no way I can make it better. For for the people in 1917, for example, mm. um, which brings a certain kind of sadness, but would also bring a fairly immediate relief. The so the process of working with these entanglements in the family soul, the process of working with that is called a family constellation, and the objective of that is to discover where the entanglements are, where the devotion is got itself so twisted up. And perhaps has been so invisible that we have no idea it's going on. All we know is is that when things get better, it starts to feel worse. And then weirdly enough, when things start feeling bad again, they start feeling better, which is very confusing for us and just bad for, for morale generally. Yeah. And, and, and again, just as, as the audience is thinking about, I think there's some sort of general problems that people have, you know, health it's one of them. Uh, financial is often another. Uh, relationships is another. Uh, those are probably the three biggest ones. Those are the three biggest ones. Right. Yes, yeah. So, um, so what, just again, what, what you're saying is that if you're listening and you find yourself having challenges in one of those, what, what you're saying is that, uh, if you go back enough in your family history, you're, uh, parents or who, whoever raised you, um, your grandparents, your great grandparents, your uncle, you know, just your whole fam constellation of family. Inevitably, there is someone in there that also had issues with one of or all of or some of those things. And for you to feel a sense of belonging with those, those family members, you suffer along with them. And you do it unconsciously. So, for example, if it's about money and your parents grew up in the depression and they were always saying things, money is tight, scarcity, et cetera, you will tend to adopt that so that you sort of stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Am I understanding correctly? 
very much. Okay. Yes. Okay. That's that's okay. very nicely said. Okay. Without having any idea, we don't have any idea that we're actually doing that, yeah. because because the idea that we would do that is is preposterous, yeah. um, and but it happens in every life, in every family, um, no exceptions. So one, as we're starting to work with someone to revise things, we have some really standard questions. Well, that we'll ask about these things. It's sort of like. Um, Gee golly, upstream from you, in other words, before you in your in your family, who is it who lost everything? Who was cast out, denied, or excluded? Who was cut off or turned away from? Who was isolated or had an incredibly difficult fate, especially an incredibly difficult fate that no one wanted to see, that everyone instinctively turned from? Um this can include money, this can include health, this can include belonging, this is about self-expression, this is about nearly any kind of growth and movement and fulfillment that that should fill human beings with joy. And when we're tangled up with the suffering and the loss that has come before us, feeling that joy, feeling that fulfillment feels wrong, mm. it feels bad. We don't say to ourselves, golly, I seem to be messing up my performance in this meeting this morning out of devotion to great Uncle Arthur. <laughs> who <if> was, yeah. <laughs> because because if, if we had that awareness, we wouldn't do it. We would stop it instantly. It's, it's, it's very difficult when having it be worse feels better. But this is what happens. The form that people take to, or the forms rather people use for this suffering are, that there are about three ways to summarize them. They pay attention to someone who came before them in the family, not consciously, but the entanglement is obvious. It's right there. We have ways of sort of unpacking that and showing that in real time, in you know, in physical space. Um, but one one approach is to say, whoever you are up there, I will be like you. I promise. I will keep you company in your loss, in your misery, in your disgrace, in your poverty, in your illness, and so forth. I will be like you. That's the first format. The second format is very close. It's, and it's a little bit more grand even where, where our soul says, our individual soul says to that collective family soul and someone in that family soul, our soul says, I will have your fate instead of you. Mm. I will have it in your stead. I will be ill so that you don't have to be. And then there's a curious thing that happens. It's kind of like, and when you're not ill, by the time I come along, the family won't be mm, disordered and disturbed by by your loss anymore. So by, by the time I come along, I won't have to be ill. So it's sort of like, I will have your fate, and then when I get here to planet Earth, in the incarnation I've selected here, I won't have to do this anymore. It's it's like entirely pointless and very beautiful in terms of intention. And then there's a third format, which is basically a child soul looks into the family. And I'll just speak really simply, make it be about mother and father. The child soul says, dear mother, dear father, you know what? It should be, it should be the safest and the best it's ever going to be here with you, but it's not. And then we'll put in parenthesis, maybe it's really horrible. Maybe it's just not so good. Close parenthesis. So in your honor and to protect you, I will make sure that my life never gets better with anyone else. 
any place else ever, I promise. And then something in our human nature is flooded with such good feelings that that locks in. And we set about making sure that whoever, that in terms of relationship or money or belonging or respect, that we don't have a better experience than we had originally in, in that family system, which is heartbreaking and really difficult and really confusing. And it's confusing right up until the point that we can sort it out this way, which can happen really quickly. And we kind of, to say it very informally, we kind of do OMG. And then we can ask, and what would I like now? There has to be a better way to say I love you than by suffering physically or financially or emotionally or mentally or any other way. And and in all of this, what what has struck me is, and you've talked about this, it's sort of the dichotomy of the or juxtapositioning of the sadness along with the beautifulness of it. And and yes. in what lies between the two is is this, this deep acceptance of whatever happened to your mother, your father, your grandmothers, you know, whatever the family system that you cannot change it. And that, um, by you moving forward differently or in more joy or whatever it may be, you have, you, you have to accept what the fate was for those who came before you. Yes. Yeah. Which is, which sounds so sensible. (laughs) And, and and is so difficult to do. There's um, a sentence that that summarizes um, what goes on for for all of us about this. Whenever we are confronted with moving forward, and 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 most people, and especially your listeners, are going to be more or less continually confronted with moving forward. Whenever we're confronted with moving forward, we are also confronted with allowing people we love to be where they are. Mm. Now, anyone who's not a sociopath has trouble right away just on that basis because allowing people to be where they are feels disrespectful. It feels like um, a profound betrayal, it gets so confusing so fast. And again, especially because we can't track what we're doing consciously. So it all jumbles up and we repeat the patterns that allow us the best feeling that we can get to. And those feelings aren't nearly as good as what they should be, but we, there's not another choice to make. There's no place else to go. So when we are in this place, this is a great segue into this family constellation therapy, which again, um, I have done and is just mind blowing. Um, if we could, let's walk through what that looks like. And if we could, as I mentioned in the, the pre-show, walk through uh, the woman who went before me, who I ended up participating in, and I'll talk a bit about what that was like to participate in her family constellation, um, and actually how I felt being in it. Uh, but if you will walk us through what, what that is, what this looks like. Great. Thank you. Um, we begin by usually interviewing the person we'll be working with in private. And, um, it's a pretty straightforward interview. It doesn't, interestingly, it doesn't deal with psychology. It doesn't deal with, um, 
with violation. It doesn't deal with right doing and wrong doing. It's simply a process of asking who in your family, if anyone, had any of these following experiences. Again, cast out, denied, excluded, was in a war, especially in combat, lost a fortune, made a fortune. Um, there are quite a few um, kind of bullet points that we can ask about. Then the 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 constellation facilitator, and we're by the way we're sitting with a group of people, maybe ten, maybe forty people sitting in a really large circle. There is no conscious information available to anyone in the group. So um, when we did your constellation, I'm pretty sure that all I said was, "Hi, this is Susanna. We're going to do a constellation for Susanna and Susanna's family and Susanna's life," and that was the entirety of the conscious mind information people had. What I had done uh, for in your constellation and for the other one that you are referring to is gather some information ahead of time, pick out where it seems likely that there might be entanglement, that there might be suffering devotion. We call them suffering obligations of love because it's suffering because it's it, the driver for it is is this unworkable effort to make things better for those who came before. And we hold them as obligations. We hold these decisions. I will be like you, I promise, as an obligation, although it's just entirely made up. And the driver, again, is love. It's one of the most difficult things about being human is that love is the source of as many problems in really deep ways as it's the solution for, except it's not, it's not proper love. It's sort of immature love. So uh, the the facilitator gets a sense of what might ha- might have been going on, and the way we work with it is uh, we write a few, mm, take two or three index cards to get started. And so on the card, not about your constellation or anyone else's, but just for example, I might write mother and great uncle Arthur. Um, um, uh, I'm thinking of someone recently now um, who was brain damaged in an instant. Uh, when he was a teenager, great uncle Arthur tripped and hit his head on the curb and was institutionalized ever after. Um, and uh, and maybe some, somebody else. And we walk out into the middle of the circle holding these index cards, which are folded and shuffled. So who knows which card is which? I hold out the index cards. Volunteers come out of the circle of chairs. They take a card. They don't look at it. They put it in their pocket. And these are tra- just to, just to interject. These sure. people are trained volunteers, meaning they. Um, well, I'll let you explain. They're not just Joe Schmo off the street, um, right? Well, I don't want to say anything about the Schmoes, but. Right. Um, <laughs> But they're not necessarily trained. I mean, in the constellations that that we do at NLP Marin, we're working with students all the time. So many students attend as part of their learning. But someone requires no training. They can just come in and sit down. And if they align themselves just a little tiny bit, there's nothing formal about it. With the endeavor there for the evening, how we're going to do some constellations, what happens is they're welcome to grab an index card. They put it in their pocket, 
And the highly trained ones, the experienced ones, do exactly the same thing. They put the card in their pocket, and they go stand somewhere in the circle, and then a mysterious thing occurs. They begin to have, within a few seconds, they begin to have the experience, the felt experience, of whatever name is written on that index card, or whatever country, or whatever the event was. Sometimes the card has the has the the label of a disease process on it. Sometimes it has the uh, um, body parts, organs, and so forth. Um, Sometimes if we're working with the constellations about businesses, we have the sales department and the marketing department and the R&D department there. Um, whoever, whatever's on the card begins to become present in the experience of the representative, which is what they're called. We don't know how it happens. It happens 100% reliably. It's quite mysterious. Um, it's the strongest confirmation of of the holographic model of the universe, of all information being available in any information. It just happens right in front of our eyes. And without revealing what's on the car to anyone in the group, we gradually discover what the experiences are and who or where it is that the entanglement is going on. If I can give a, like a, um, a super simple example, we did a constellation a couple of weeks ago uh, for someone who's been wrestling around with really severe depression. And uh, just the main question was, golly, out of devotion to whom or what has this person been been arranging to be so depressed pretty much their entire life? We put a representative in the constellation for mother and father and for the depression. Uh, no one knew who they were. <laughs> We call it working in a veiled format. So there's no conscious mind to distract or people don't have to say, gee, uh, who am I? What am I supposed to be feeling? None of that occurs. It's just not necessary because it's just not necessary because there's no conscious info. The, the depression went over and the person with the card in their pocket that said depression went over and stood next to the father immediately. Hmm. Father felt better there. Depression knew it belonged there. Mom was just staring off into the distance. She wasn't, she wasn't part of that. The next step was to put in another representative. And on that person's card, I just handed them the card. I'd written the name of the client. Mm -hmm. they, they put that card in their pocket. They walked out into the circle. And the first thing they did was go over, turn the depression around and try to uh, link arms with it back to back and lift it up sort of the way you would a really heavy weight, mm. a really gigantic backpack. Wow. And and they felt much better carrying that than any place else, than any other position or arrangement that they might have found. And just to reiterate to everybody listening, no, no the four people, the three people who are out there, the mother, no, four, mother, the father, depression, and the client, uh -huh. nobody knows what they're representing, what they're talking about, what, and they don't know anything, but they have these sort of intuitive feelings of when they get the card of the client, again, they don't look at it, they just put it in their pocket, and then all of a sudden they feel drawn to someone else in the room and they feel drawn to do something. They don't know why. And so then they just do it. And then when the card is revealed, it's pretty freaking amazing. So anyways, just to jump in. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. No one, no one knows 
what the what yeah. what the client's experience is, what the client's history is, or who they're representing. These things occur nevertheless. Yeah. In fact, they occur they occur really simply and cleanly, much more quickly than they would if anyone knew knew the story. So that constellation format that lets us reveal where the entanglements are going on, and then the conclusion of the constellation is to find uh, an arrangement, um, a place of of belonging and respect that lets us um, far more effectively and and appropriately say I love you to the people we want to say I love you to without limiting or damaging ourselves in the process. And um, and then we just sort of release when that when the constellation completes in that way, it is done. We've essentially we've had a little tiny piece of the family the family hologram in very low resolution, but we've had a little tiny piece of it, and because we've had this little tiny piece, this this view and feeling into the experience of the family and the people involved, and we've made some adjustments, we've made some changes, we've found a better way to say I love you, more respectful way to say I love you than by, let me just interject for a moment here, no one feels better in a family when their descendants mess their lives up in an unworkable effort to say I love you. Mm. Pain, Pain is never pushed down from up above, so to speak. It is always those of us who come into life perceive this pain in the ones who came before and reach out and try to grab it. Mm. That's where the difficulty comes in. So we have to find, and no one likes to be rescued by a really confident, arrogant three-year-old, actually, (laughs) that no matter how much pain they're in. So we find a more appropriate way to say, I love you. We stabilize that in the constellation. We've changed things in this little, little, little tiny piece of the hologram, but it changes everything consequently. It changes things forward in time, backward in time, and in the immediate experience of the of of the person. And sometimes things are different uh, almost immediately, and sometimes that 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 resolution, if you take the the hyphen out, it's the word resolution. Sometimes that resolution takes a while to integrate in, but the consequences are almost always really, really beautiful. And so for to use that gentleman, I think it was a, a gentleman with the depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so for him now having that awareness that um, of what was going on, it almost, I imagine, lifts some weight off for him. Is that right? I mean, just as obviously we can't speak for him, but in your experience, Yes, it really, really, really helps uh, when when something can show us what we've been up to. When when through that experience we learn that mm, this pain we've been keeping ourselves in has to a great extent has to a great extent been designed to improve the experience of someone else, and that there was absolutely no point to it. I mean, that's a difficult question. If we, you know, when we discover that our suffering for the ones who came before has been entirely pointless, is that good news or bad news? And it kind of goes both ways for a while, but eventually it's entirely good news. So the understanding is an important part of it. The relief that comes from that is an important part of it. But then there's this other element, which is even, I think, more precious, which is that the structure of how things occur, what causes experience to feel good, what causes experience to feel not good, 
that starts to revise mm. so that we naturally move toward the fulfillment that is properly ours without having to be guilty about it or afraid about it or weirdly upset that life is getting better. Yeah, gosh, it's just phenomenal. And I, you know, just a, a, a quick thing as I jump, as I said, I jumped in for someone else's constellation and, and the, story was this woman had problems with relationships over and over. I think she'd gone through divorce and she was in a relationship now that wasn't really working out. And so anyhow, um, it ends up that her grandmother had driven a car in front of a train essentially to commit suicide and had her kid in the, I think it was her five-year-old kid in the, in the back of the seat. Uh, the kid got, um, and this was in the, fifties, I want to say, and the kid got thrown from the car, ended up surviving, but became crippled. The, the mother, the grandmother, she was a mother at the time, but died. Um, and so the kids, three kids were left orphaned, um, and with their dad, but, uh, you had asked me to step in as the youngest son of that woman of who killed herself. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was one at the time, but anyway, so I jumped in again. I don't know anything from anything. I don't know this person. I'm not trained at nothing. But as I stood in that spot and I stood in front of the woman who, the person who represented the woman who killed herself, who would have been my mother, I felt such rage inside of me towards her. I mean, it was palpable, I, you know, I don't know why, but it was, it was, it was overwhelming. So anyway, I'm just, just want to give an example of how powerful the experience is and how real it is from seemingly out of nowhere and out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It is, it is, it is, it is, it is always just quite remarkable. It's, it's just amazing. Um, and then, by no the way, how- back, if sorry, go ahead. Please, please. You know, I was just going to say, and by the way, that just to continue that story, the one-year-old that I played, he ended up dying of cancer later in life. Um, I don't mean to jump to conclusions that that rage caused that or not. I don't know. But anyway, it's just uh, interesting. It's, yeah. Resolved trauma. Um, I don't know. But loss, grief, a whole lot of stuff. But. The... Um, The odds are that that experience, and uh, and of course in the constellation, we don't unpack or try to deal with the psychology of it very much. Yeah. Har- hardly at all. It's just like what happened. Yeah. Who lost their life? Who lost their love? How? What? What really difficult human thing happened? And in and through that, we can see in what way the person in present time. The client, so to speak, the mm-hmm. one we're, we're working with has been replicating the loss or the disaster or the sadness or, or the illness. Uh, so, again, we're always after there has to be a better way to say I love you. Leaving life uh, was probably that that one-year-old who became an adult who then died of cancer, that leaving life probably had two main drivers in it. One was the understandable effect of the uncommunicable, unrecognizable rage that goes with the loss. Especially when a mother turns to her children, and no mothers do this if they're about to go commit suicide by driving in front of a train, but if they would have a little family meeting and say, kids, I love you very much, but I can't stay, something outside of life pulls me. Mm. I'm going to leave. Something else is more important to me than you are. 
you will have nothing from me from now on. Now, if the parent had a little family meeting and made that announcement, it wouldn't help any. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, um, someone might call 911 and maybe head the person off at the pass, so to speak. But, um, but the, the rage is understandable. The rage has an effect in physiology and health and well-being. But there's a devotional structure that where, where, whereby that third child's soul probably said, Dear Mother, if it helps you, I won't be alive either, I promise. Yeah. I will be like you. So we have these two main huge drivers, this family soul devotion, and then the, the consequences of emotion and patterning and belief that operate much more private to our own brains and our own bodies. And these two things are always swirling together. And out of that swirl, they produce and they stabilize an awful lot of really negative, really unwanted experience. And they keep it stable. And our instinct across time is usually to try to find a more effective way to defeat ourselves just to get these things to change. That's the arm wrestling again. If I could just get a stronger left arm, I could defeat my right arm. Um, let me go find a toolbox. Let me take some, some, some training that will show me how to overcome and defeat myself. That's understandable, the, the, the urge for that. And it works up to a certain point, but it always has a kickback. Um, so what we want to do always is find just a more elegant way to to produce the experience that we do want without having to turn against ourselves or anyone else. And right there is where the internal neurolinguistic programming, neurolinguistic patterning comes back in. Um, we, so we have two sentences that can summarize everything about humans. One is whenever we're confronted with moving forward, we're also confronted with allowing someone we love to be where they are. And the other sentence is, the experiences that we learn to survive become the experiences upon which our continued surviving will depend. So that's a brain thing. That's a primate thing. Um, and if a child learns to survive a certain set of states and experiences and threats and losses and heartbreaks, then for their brain, not their human brain, but for their creature brain, which is a big part of the human brain, then those experiences become the basis for continued survival. If I can just go over in that direction for a moment. Yeah. Um, our brain, that part of our brain, our creature brain, which doesn't think and doesn't plan and doesn't have a voice, doesn't have a speech center. It doesn't have an identity. It doesn't have an I am. It is an association machine. And so if a child nearly dies of shame, just for example, in a family that's filled with shame, what their creature part of the brain will do, not understanding shame, but just understanding or not understanding anything actually, but there's a set of emotions and states that are really difficult and they're not lethal. If there's a threat to survival and then there's survival, then the threat and the survival, they link up. I'm, I'm waving my fingers in the air and I'm intertwining them uh, as I'm speaking about this. They become one thing. So then there's no survival without the shame, which is not a conscious thought either. 
But as we know, the person then gets away from the family and they say, glad to be out of there. And they launch themselves out into the world. And just about the first thing they do is get into relationship with or go to work for someone who absolutely knows the shame choreography to do with them. And, um, and they say, wow, this is not what I wanted. So they leave that job or they leave that relationship and then and it replicates again and it replicates again. This is their brain at work doing what it does to keep them well and safe. Let's make it 20 or 30 or 40 years ago without the shame. There's not survival. So someone who comes along who doesn't, doesn't generate the shame, uh, they're a fabulous person. They have for a little while maybe a great relationship if they go into relationship with that individual. They can have a great time. But then after a while, this curious thing happens. They think to themselves one morning, ah, I don't know, there's just something missing here. And most often people will leave those relationships. And they leave them not because they were dangerous. They leave them because they weren't threatening enough. They didn't produce the little squirt of survival. And then later on, that's the one that we let get away. Yeah. Most everyone has one of those, assuming that they've, they've, they've been doing more than one relationship in the course of their lives. So, so we've got brain patterning that keeps us alive in the past. I mean, I don't know how to say that more clearly. Um, if a four-year-old learns not to perish from that shame, then their brain will continue to make sure they don't die when they're four. But it will do that their entire life. Um, What humans do, it seems to me, is we spend most of our time trying to make sure we don't die in the past. And about that, we're all 100% successful all the time. So our brains just keep squirting out chemicals that say, yay, good job. It's, I'm sure people are just listening, going, Oh my, so many, so many lights go off about themselves, about people they know, about, you know, just, I can just only imagine. Now, if, if people want to, uh, experience a family constellation session uh, with you, if they want to do NLP, if they want to learn more, where can they find out more? Um, I would, uh, strongly suggest that they contact me and contact us at nlpmarin.com. Um, info at, NLP, at nlpmarin.com. And so it's nlpmarin.com. And if people don't live in Marin, you still do these constellation family therapies via Skype as well. Yes. Right. Okay. And then you have a new book coming out called Transformational NLP, a new psychology in the spring. Is that right? That's correct. It should be out within a couple of months here. Awesome. Well, we can't wait to read it. Thank you so much, Carl, for your time. I'm what a treat and thank you for all the work you've, you've done for me and for so many that you've impacted and will continue to. Thank you very much, Suzanne. It's been a great pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as I did and would love to continue the conversation. So please feel free to reach out on our Facebook page, which is Susanna Scully. 
S-U-Z-A-N-N-A-H-S-C-U-L-L-Y. You can find us at the same Twitter handle, Susanna Scully, and also over at Instagram. And our website is SusannaScully.com. So keep it pretty simple there. Thank you all for listening in and look forward to chatting with you next time.